Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Um, we've arrived in our study to the part that Meryl Tenney calls the period of consummation. And this runs from chapter 18, verse 1, through to chapter 20, verse 31. By way of review, remember the stages are the prologue, which is chapter 1, verse 1 through to 18, the period of consideration, which was chapter 1, verse 19 through, is that right? <clears throat> right, you good to go? When you're ready. Certainly <clears throat> downside is I've got to go in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Run a marathon to get to the yeah, yeah. camera, you'd be back and puffing. Gary, stop puffing, it's coming through. I can't be steers, though, you know what? You've got to try not to go We have come in our study in John's Gospel to the part that Meryl Tenney calls the period of consummation. And that period runs from chapter 18, verse 1, through to chapter 20, verse 31. Just by way of re review, remember the portions that Meryl Tenney has divided John's Gospel into run the prologue, which was the first 18 chap uh, verses of chapter 1, the period of consideration, which went from chapter 1, verse 19, through to chapter 4, verse 54, then the period of controversy, which ran from chapter 5 through to the end of chapter 6, the period of conflict, which was chapter 7 through to chapter 11, verse 53, the period of crisis, which was chapter 11, verse 54, through to chapter 12, verse 36. The period of conference, which was chapter 12, verse 36, through to chapter 17, verse 26. And now here, the period of consummation. In this season of the Lord's Passion, the great themes that have been running through John's Gospel of belief and unbelief come to their consummation. Unbelief reaches its deepest infamy in the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, and belief reaches its highest achievement in the disciples at the period or at the time of the resurrection and, of course, leading up to the ascension, climaxing, I guess, in Thomas's famous uh, phrase, my Lord and my God. This portion of John's Gospel probably bears the closest resemblance to the synoptics, and yet even then there are things that John contains and John omits that the synoptics are in, in the way of differing from the synoptics. Uniquely, John records the trial before Annas in chapter 18, verse 12 through 24. Some details of the hearing of Pilate are unique to John. For example, the argument about the inscription that was put over Jesus' cross. The committal of his mother to the care of the beloved disciple in chapter 19, verse 25. His last cry from the cross in chapter 19, verse 30. His interview with Mary Magdalene in chapter 20, verse 11. Thomas's remarks in chapter 20, verse 24, and the appearance of Jesus to the seven disciples at the Lake of Galilee in chapter 21, verses 1 through 24. All of those are unique to John's gospel. John omits the agony of Gethsemane, 
the tearing of the veil at the temple, the group of women who gathered at the tomb, the walk to Emmaus, the Great Commission, and the Ascension. And so even though John's Gospel is very similar to the synoptics at this point, there are still major differences. Let's read then chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Ravine with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place, for Jesus had gone there many times with his disciples. The chief priests and Pharisees had given Judas a squad of soldiers and police to accompany him. Now with blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. Stepping forward to meet them, he asked, Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and as he said it, they fell backwards to the ground. Once more he asked them, Whom are you seeking for? Again they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you are after, let these others go. He did this to carry out the prophecy he had just made. I have not lost a single one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup the father has given me? So the Jewish police and the soldiers and their lieutenants arrested Jesus and tied him. Chapter 17, of course, was Jesus in his high priestly prayer. After he finished praying, he and his disciples go out of Jerusalem across the brook Kidron and enter a garden up on the slopes of Mount Olive. If you know anything about the geography, the Kidron Valley runs north and south between the eastern wall of the temple and the Mount of Olives. The brook was dry for most of the year, uh, and so they passed over it up into Gethsemane, the olive grove on the slopes of Mount Olive on the other side of the brook. I guess one might answer why Jesus didn't do what he had normally done when he was in Jerusalem and simply gone to Bethany, the home of his friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and spent the last night with them. It was the eve of the Passover and Jewish law actually required that observing Jews remain within the confines of the extended city limits, limits that included Gethsemane but excluded Bethany. And that might well be one of the reasons why Jesus didn't go to the home of his friends. Jesus and his disciples had often gone to this garden on previous occasions so that Judas was well aware of the place and the time, so it was night, and the location, secluded and outside the city, provided the betrayer with the perfect and ideal venue in which to bring the arresting officers to Jesus without risking uh, a, a mob's riot. Verse 3 actually states that there was a squad of Roman soldiers with Judas. The Greek language makes it clear that it was a Roman cohort. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, A full auxiliary cohort had the paper strength of a thousand men. 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry led by a tribune. Now, a practice cohort could number from between 480 and 600 men. Although, obviously, depending on the assignment that was required, it could be as few as 200 men. Highly likely that we aren't talking about 1,000, but probably more likely 200 Roman soldiers. As well as the Roman cohort, it says there were Jewish officers sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. So there may well have been uh, up to 300 men in this party. 
It seems completely over the top, but of course they would have no idea as to whether Jesus' followers would fight or perhaps more likely that they would run and hide, which would require some kind of search. As we read the story, Jesus, of course, did neither. Verse 4 says that knowing, he, knowing what was about to happen, he went forth to meet them. That, that word uh, going forth is the same word that, Jesus, that John uses elsewhere to describe Jesus coming out of the presence of the Father. He went forth out of the presence of the Father. It's found in chapter 8, verse 42, chapter 16, verse 27, chapter 17, verse 8. It has the idea of going out to fulfill a mission. This was a man on a mission. He was in charge of what was about to happen. He was not simply a helpless victim. So his surrender to this Roman cohort was conscious. He went out knowing the, thing, knowing the things that would happen to him. It was voluntary, verse 5 and verse 8. They didn't seize him. They had tried to do that on other occasions and had been completely unable to do so. Chapter 7, verse 30 and verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 39. Chapter 11, verse 57. Record occasions where they sought to arrest Jesus and seize him and were not able to do so. <clears throat> So his surrender is conscious, it is voluntary. He asks them, whom are you seeking? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And he steps forward and says, I am he. Again, if you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that the word he is in italics, which means it isn't in the original. Literally, he says, ego imi, I am. We've seen the rich overtones of this phrase many times in John. This is no, uh, nothing other than the, the great I am. Particularly in chapter 8, verse 24, verse 28, verse 58, where Jesus uses this phrase. And, and it links back to the passage in, in Exodus, I am whom I am. When Jesus declares, I am, verse 6 says, they are all thrown backwards to the ground. We know enough about the Bible to know that many times as the presence of God particularly becomes manifest, people are unable to stand. The priests in the tabernacle, when it was filled with the cloud of God's glory, were unable to minister, unable to stand. And many times when people encounter the transcendent God, the response is to, to fall to the ground. Here, something like 300 men collapse under the mighty presence of Jesus as he steps forward. So his surrender is conscious, it is voluntary, it is vicarious. In chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, I'm the one, so if it's me you're after, let these others go. In a sense, this is in microcosm what Jesus is about to do in macrocosm the next day. He gives himself up so that others can go free. Peter, as he has so often done, misunderstands what Jesus is doing and saying and leaps to his master's defense. We see that in verse 10. And it's in John's gospel only that we are told the names of the people who are involved in this incident. Peter with the sword, Malchus, the high priest's servants. You know, Peter, with all his mistakes, at least we have to acknowledge his courage in the face of in, in, in this incident. He, he's staring down the barrel of possibly 300 soldiers and, and other armed men. Did he plan to take them all on one by one? I mean, his act, frankly, is quite suicidal. It was also very clumsy. Though he was within close range, he misses with his first swipe of the sword. Peter is clearly a fisherman and not a swordsman. He slashes off the man's ear while he's aiming for his head. 
Jesus stands Peter down and simply says, Peter, violence breeds violence. Matthew chapter 26, verse 52. Those who live by the sword will also die by the sword. Put it away, Peter. Jesus is fully resolved to drink the Father's cup. This incident, as uh, as is John's style, is set up in the way of a contrast by John. And we see a stark contrast between two disciples in this instance, Peter and Judas. Judas arrives with armed men to capture, to capture Jesus. Peter draws arms to defend Jesus. Judas approaches Jesus by stealth. Peter defends Jesus openly. Judas betrays Jesus, uh, Jesus in cold blood, Peter attacks with zeal and passion. Judas's crime is deliberate throughout. Peter is rash and impulsive, loyal but rash and impulsive. John's portrayal of this incident, Jesus responds to Judas in silence. He rebukes Peter sternly. I think Jesus hadn't given up, at least on Peter, and the possibility of shaping Peter's character. His silence to Judas is absolutely telling. So Jesus, giving himself up voluntarily, is taken away uh, by this cohort and is led to the house of Annas. And we see that in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 18. This man, Annas, had been the high priest in Israel between AD 7 and AD 14 or 15. Normally a high priest was appointed for life, but the Romans had stepped in and deposed him. Nevertheless, this man remained significantly influential. He was probably the godfather in a sense, high priest emeritus, the power behind the throne. He had put four of his sons into that office after he had been disposed, uh, deposed, and now the fifth, his son-in-law Caiaphas, is in the office. This family, Annas's family, is aristocratic, uh, wealthy, politically astute. They were nicknamed by the people the Hissing Vipers, and that nickname was given for good reasons. They had lined their pockets through religion. It seems that some things never change. Jesus, after he'd cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, uh, had, had, as a result of that, Annas become his sworn enemy. Jesus had challenged Annas's pride in his pocket. And this final confrontation, although a long time coming, had been inevitable since that early day in the temple. Verses 15 through 18, we have an interruption in the flow of, of what's happening to Jesus to record Peter's first denial. After Jesus' arrest, Peter had followed him and, uh, and the mob, and with, with one other disciple, had... Uh, had followed Jesus. It's traditionally accepted that this unnamed disciple is in fact likely to be John himself, the beloved disciple. It might have been, of course, uh, there are often good reasons behind these traditions. However, there are at least a couple of reasons to, to question that identification. Firstly, he is not called, as is normally the case, the beloved disciple. It simply says another disciple. Secondly, it's somewhat unlikely that a simple Galilean fisherman would have access to the high priest's courtyard. It says that he was known by the high priest. Perhaps it might have been more likely someone like Joseph of Arimathea or perhaps Nicodemus, both who were members of the Sanhedrin, both who were disciples of Jesus, and both who would have known Annas and Caiaphas. We, we simply don't know for sure. 
Both John and Mark record that it was a servant girl that first challenged Peter. It's at this point that Peter's courage fails. He'd faced up to 200, possibly 300 soldiers in the garden, but in these surroundings he folds before a simple servant girl. And once having said the wrong thing, of course he has to back it up, and then he does so on subsequent occasions. When Jesus was confronted by his enemies, he steps forward and says, I am. When Peter is confronted by the adversaries, he answers, I am not. In verse 18, Peter is warming himself before a charcoal fire. It seems like a funny thing just to record, but that becomes significant later in the story. And if you'd like to flick over to chapter 21, verse 9, you'll see in Jesus' restoration of Peter, the charcoal fire is mentioned. I think the charcoal fire sets off um, memories for Peter that are particularly significant in the process of restoration. Verses 19 through 24, we are taken back to Jesus' interrogation before Annas. In in a formal Jewish hearing in the first century, it was illegal to question a defendant in the way that Annas did to Jesus. Charges were, uh, those charged were not allowed to incriminate themselves out of their own mouth. They were not allowed to be asked leading questions. A case against a person had to rest on the weight of the testimony of witnesses. So in verse 20, Jesus responds to this illegality. He says, I've spoken openly in public. I've taught regularly in meeting places and the temple where all the Jews come together. Everything has been out in the open. I've said nothing in secret. So why are you treating me as a conspirator? Conspirator, Question those who have been listening to me. They know well what I have said. My teachings have all been above board. Jesus' response is a rebuke and a protest at uh, Annas' illegality. In a sense, he's saying, you're supposed to find witnesses. You are not supposed to ask me. They shouldn't be hard to find as I've done everything out in the open and nothing in secret. Obviously, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus never spoke to his disciples in private. He is simply saying, whether in private or in public, it is all of one piece. What I've said in private and in public is exactly the same. In verse 22, some minor official gives Jesus a slap on his face for his troubles. It would be the first of many slaps that would occur over the next few hours. But Jesus doesn't back down. He says, if what I've said is wrong, testify how and why. If not, this slap on the face is as illegal as your mode of questioning. In verse 24, the interview terminates and Annas sends Jesus off to his son-in-law Caiaphas. Verses 25 through 27 return back to Peter and his denials and there is two more. John has set up another one of his dramatic contrasts, this time between Jesus and Peter. Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. From chapter 18, verse 28, through chapter 19 and verse 16, we have Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. This trial in John is given much more space than the synoptic synoptic gospels. In fact, John reports more than all of the synoptics put together. There are many unusual, read illegal, aspects to this trial. 
Firstly, it was at an unusual and illegal time. It took place in the hours of darkness, sometime before 6am in the morning. In addition to that point of illegality, trials were never normally held on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a Passover. It was unusual in its haste. Pharisaic scruples normally demanded that they have at least a day before they issue a verdict of condemnation. Justice needs to seem to be done, but here they push for an immediate decision. It was in an unusual place, half inside and half outside Pilate's residence. As the scene unfolds, we see Pilate being torn, physically and psychologically. That that, that psychological tearing is reflected in his constant movements between Jesus on the inside and the Jewish delegation on the outside. You know, the reason the Jews refused to go inside in Pilate's uh, residence was that entering the home of a Gentile would have rendered them ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in the Passover the next day. In a sense, it's the height of both stupidity and hypocrisy. It's a classic case of straining gnats and swallowing camels, seeking to please God by remaining ceremonially clean. They crucify the one that God has sent to them. I think that's a constant danger for religious people, scrupulous about outward observances while at the same time failing to deal with the real and inward issues of the heart. Now, Pilate is a fascinating character and really one worthy of some study. There are two human beings mentioned in the historic creeds of Christianity, the woman who brought Jesus into the world, Mary, born of a virgin Mary, and the man who sent him out of the world, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. For many years, there was no historical record outside the Gospels of this person called Pontius Pilate. And as a result, many critics claimed that the Bible's writers had simply made up the story. But in 1928, uh, near Caesarea, a coin was unearthed with his name inscribed on it. Early legends and stories about Pilate tell us that he was the illegitimate son of Tyrus, the king of Mayence. Apparently he was captured and sent to Rome as a slave. Ambitious and hard-working, he had risen through the ranks and had managed to capture the affections of a well-to-do Roman woman whom he had married. He continued up through the ranks and ultimately was appointed to be governor of Judea by the order of Emperor Tiberius in AD 26, a position he held until AD 37. People are somewhat divided. Scholars can't make up their minds over Pilate's true character as is revealed in and through this trial. Was he a political animal, a complete cynic, or was he a genuine though very much torn seeker? Through this uh, trial, he asks 10 questions. Are they the questions of a complete cynic or or of a seeker? The first one in chapter 18, verse 29, is to the Jews, and he simply asks, what accusations do you bring against this man? The second is in chapter 18, verse 33. It's directed toward Jesus, and he asks, are you the king of the Jews? In chapter 18, verse 35, he says, am I a Jew? In the same verse, he says, what have you done? In a couple of verses on, in verse 37, he says, are you a king then? In chapter 18, verse 38, the perhaps more cynical, what is truth? In chapter 18, verse 39, the seventh question is directed to the Jews. Do you want me to release Jesus, king of the Jews? 
the eighth question in chapter 19 and verse 9 to Jesus. Where are you from? In chapter 19, verse 10, are you not speaking to me? In chapter 19, verse 10, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? These questions, along with his movements in and out, really do portray, or perhaps more accurately betray, a person who is psychologically torn about the situation that he's facing. So in chapter 18, verse 29, Pilate goes out to the Jew Jewish delegations that has arrived early in the morning, and he initiates formal proceedings. The formal complaint has to be lodged before a case can proceed. And so he starts, what are your accusations? In verse 30, some, somewhat insolently, sullenly, they respond, if he hadn't been doing something evil, do you think we'd be here bothering you? It's clear that there's no love loss between Pilate and, and the Jews. They have brought Jesus not for an examination, but for sentencing. They expect Pilate simply to confirm their already established judgment and simply order the execution of the prisoner. There is veiled contempt in their response. They are saying, our judgment is sufficient. You should simply carry out our behest. His retort is a, is, a, is a virtual taunt. In verse 31, Pilate says, you take him and judge him by your law. Sarcastically, he's suggesting since they started this whole procedure, they should finish it, knowing, of course, that they couldn't. He's trying to humiliate them. They aren't allowed under Roman law to carry out capital punishment. Not that that always stopped him. We know in the story thus far, they had sought to execute Jesus several times by throwing stones at him. And later, uh, of course, they carried out an execution of Stephen. I suspect what they wanted in this case was to get the Romans to do their dirty work. They wanted Roman fingerprints on the murder weapon, as it were, so that when and if challenged by the mob, they could simply say, well, the Romans ordered it, the Romans did it. Pilate, however, initiates a fresh hearing in their presence. They are somewhat miffed and they proceed to lay out their accusations, which seem to center around Jesus' claims to be king. So in verse 33, Pilate goes back inside the praetorium to consult with Jesus and he asks, Are you king of the Jews? Now, I suspect that what Pilate is doing here is trying to establish whether Jesus is some form of insurrectionist. Are you a rebel leader? Is he a danger to Rome? Pilate discovers, as many have discovered before him and since, that when you ask Jesus a question, the answer is very likely to be another question. And in verse 34, Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others tell you about me? Now, Jesus is inquiring here as to whether Pilate's question springs from his own curiosity or is simply a reflection of the charges. In a sense, he's saying, are you simply repeating secondhand charges? Are you looking for evidence? Is this the way Roman justice functions? Jesus has now become the interrogator. He, he's the one in charge. The prisoner has become the prosecutor. Pilate's response is somewhat indignant in verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate re replied, your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? The royal pretensions of any particular Jew meant absolutely nothing to Pilate. He isn't Jewish and quite frankly doesn't care. But he does say, okay, perhaps I shouldn't have simply repeated secondhand charges. What is it that you have done? 
In verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus, in fact, reveals that he is a king and that he does have a kingdom. His, his reply, my kingdom is not of this world, can be and sometimes has been misinterpreted. It could imply a an altogether spiritual and otherworldly reality that has little, if not nothing, to do with this world. What Jesus is saying here, however, is not that it doesn't have anything to do with this world, but that its origin or source is not of this world. It may not come from this world, but it certainly is for the world. It doesn't mean that it's not active in the affairs of the world. It just means Ultimately, uh, its source and origin isn't from this world, although ultimately it will transform it. Because it doesn't have its origins in this world, it will not be defended, Jesus is saying, by this world's means. Roman interests aren't in jeopardy, since no violence or force will be resorted to. It nearly happened, as Peter picked up the sword, but of course Jesus restrained it. Through this trial, Pilate seems to be moving from scorn to surprise to a puzzled and more respectful regard. And in verse 37 says, so you are a king then. In some translations, Jesus' response to that question seems a, a little vague. If you say so, or you have said so. It's not vague in the Greek. In fact, J.B. Phillips captures it perfectly when he translates it, indeed, I am a king. And then Jesus goes on to say, and my only weapon is truth. In response, we have Pilate's perhaps most memorable phrase, what is truth? In 1625, Sir Francis Bacon uh, wrote a very famous essay on truth, and he began it by saying, what is truth, suggesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Perhaps Pilate had decided that Jesus didn't pose a threat to Rome, but it hadn't stopped Jesus getting under Pilate's skin. And it's really hard to know whether Pilate is as cynical as Bacon suggests or whether he is being more and more torn by Jesus' person. His wife's troubled dream the night before and request that he have nothing to do with this righteous man probably hadn't helped. In verse 38, he leaves Jesus and goes out to the Jewish delegation to report his verdict. I find no basis in the charge against him. The Living Bible simply states, he is not guilty of any crime. What's that? <clears throat> no, no. Perhaps those cones we put out have worked. <laughs> 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 
Yep, well, I'm ready when you are. Ready to go? Excuse me. If Pilate had been a person of any integrity, this verdict should have brought an end to this whole fiasco. But clearly he is not such a man. He, he is a political manipulator, and as a result, he comes up with a scheme that he imagines might please everybody, a scheme that would allow them all to save face. It was the custom, the Roman custom at that time of year, to release a prisoner to the Jews to help placate them. Pilate suggests that he release Jesus. That way, Pilate could keep his conscience clear and the Jews could happily label him as a criminal, a pardoned one, but a criminal nonetheless whose reputation would forever be tainted. In a sense, Pilate is saying this idea could work for both of us. But the Jews will have nothing to do with it. Yes, they want a, ple a, a prisoner released, but not this one. Not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, the scripture tells us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a robber and he was a murderer. There's an interesting marginal note in chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 16, and it tells us that Barabbas's name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, of course, was a common name of the, of the time. It was the Hebrew equivalent of Joshua. It was the Greek equivalent of Joshua, rather. Bar is the word for son. Abbas is the word for father. So the question is, which Jesus, son of the father, do you want me to release to you? This Jesus, son of the father, or this Jesus, son of the father? The one who takes life or the one who gives life? And the Jews are adamant. Give us Barabbas, crucified Jesus of Nazareth. So we move now into chapter 19. Pilate comes up with another political scheme somehow to get Jesus off the hook. A fresh, if somewhat distorted, strategy. I'll have him flogged. That will meet their demands and after that I will release him. Perhaps that will please everybody. Pilate was to find out, as many have before him and since, that it is quite impossible as a leader to please everyone. So he sends Jesus to be flogged. There were three forms of Roman flogging. The fastigiato, which was a beating. That was the least severe form, which was usually meted out for relatively light offences. There was the flagellato, which was a brutal flogging, administered to criminals whose offences were much more serious. And then there was the verbo reato, which was the most terrible scourging, usually administered just before a crucifixion. People often, mercifully perhaps, died under that form of flogging, which would save them from the cross. Scholars have suggested that Pilate ordered the first form, the lighter beating at this point, if that was likely, however, then Jesus was probably given over to a much more severe scourging 
uh, after the sentence of crucifixion was passed down. This is all supposition. We don't quite know. What we do know is he was flogged and he suffered terribly at the hands of the Roman soldiers. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 19, it says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him with a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped his face. This was Barak's vulgarity and brutality at its worst. After it, Pilate goes out to the crowd, which of course implies that he had once again gone back inside to Jesus. And it says, once more Pilate came out to them and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And rather dramatically, Pilate presents Jesus to them, battered, bruised, a sorry, swollen sight, and says in Latin, echo homo, famously, behold the man. It's a statement that's dripping with irony. Here's the man that you claim is so dangerous. The Jews are unrelenting. Crucify him. Crucify him, they cried. Pilate responds, you take him and crucify him crucify him, knowing well, of course, that they can't. As for me, I find no basis in the charge against him. In verse 7, they cry out, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claims to be the son of God. Verse 8 tells us that when Pilate heard that, he now became really afraid. I suspect that he didn't understand that in a Hebrew sense, there's no way that he would have linked the Son of God with Yahweh. He was a Roman, but Romans were particularly superstitious. For them, Caesar was a Son of God. In their way of thinking, there were human beings who had divine favor and divine power, and perhaps Jesus was one of them. So verse 9, he goes back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he says to Jesus. Now, he isn't asking Jesus, uh, what part of the country do you come from? He didn't expect Jesus to answer, I'm from Nazareth. We might better rephrase it, who on earth are you? Jesus doesn't answer Pilate. Would he have understood if he had answered? If he had have answered, it might well have tipped the balances in his favor. And, see, and, and Pilate might well have said, the cross is not going to happen. He might well have, through his answer, avoided the cross. But Jesus was determined to drink the Father's cup. In verse 10, Pilate moved with frustration, says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? I'm trying to help you for goodness sake. Don't you understand? Your fate is in my hands. Jesus, in the midst of this frustration, is serene and controlled. And I'm paraphrasing verse 10 and 11 here. But Jesus says, the only power you have is delegated power. You would have none at all if my father hadn't given it to you. Your power is strictly limited. You are partially responsible for this fiasco that you call Roman justice. And although you will wash your hands shortly in an attempt to absolve yourself, you will not be exonerated. However, your sin is relatively less than the one who has handed me over to you. Who is this one? Uh, is it a reference to Judas or is it a reference to Caiaphas? D.A. Carson and his 
uh, commentary suggests that it's Caiaphas. It was he who had really just used Judas as a tool. It was Caiaphas who had taken the active part, perhaps the determinative part, in the plot against Jesus. And he had taken a leading role in formulating the charges against Jesus. In verse 12, Pilate goes back out, convinced of Jesus' innocence, and tries to release him. The Jews, however, who are very politically astute, they come up with a masterstroke. They know enough about Pilate to know his insecurity, his ambition, and so they go for the political jugular. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. Remember that Pilate had climbed out of slavery, had clawed his way up the ladder of social status to finally come to this place where he is governor of Judea. He knows how fickle Rome can be. He knows that his fall could be as far and as fast as his rise had been. He knew that Tiberius Caesar was quick to entertain suspicion regarding his subordinates and that he could and did exact swift and ruthless punishment. So Pilate is folding. In verse 13, he goes in and then brings Jesus out. And once again, famously says, Behold your king. Like Caiaphas before him, Pilate speaks better than he knows. Remember Caiaphas saying, this man must die to save the nation. The Jews unrelenting. Away with him. We have no king but Caesar. What irony. What about Yahweh? This is betrayal on a massive scale. Pilate completely capitulates. He sacrifices any principles that he may have had, any integrity to expediency. He was not a man who asked what was right. He was a man ultimately who asked what will work, what will best serve my interests. Ironically, history tells us that Pilate ultimately lost the very thing that in this incident he was trying to protect. There came a time when, in fact, he was expelled and banished and exiled into obscurity. You know, Jesus said, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will save it. If you seek to save your life and reject my purposes and cause, you will lose it. And Pilate is an illustration of that principle. There is one final pathetic little fling on Pilate's part in which he seeks to stamp his authority on this terrible travesty of justice. In verses 19 through 22, it reads, Pilate had, a note, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but... This man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate famously responded, What I have written, I have written. You know, one day Pilate will stand before that righteous judge and the roles will be reversed. Throughout this trial, we see Jesus' character revealed magnificently. We see it in his docility. Like a sheep before his shearers, silent. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, He submitted to the scourging when in fact he could have called for 12,000 angels. We see it in his humility. There was no sign of any uh, grand self-assertions. We see it in his dignity. Pilate is vacillating. The Jews are vulgar and violent. He is unmoved and unshaken. 
We see it in his integrity. There is not a false word from his lips. And finally, and dramatically, we see it in his authority. He is the one, ironically, in this situation who is completely in charge. He's the Lord. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.